Hi, and thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today we learned about research showing that giant crocodiles up to 40 feet long once roamed northeastern British Columbia nearly 100 billion years ago. We speak to a science systems engineer about a special message being put together to send into space, which they hope one day will reach aliens. The binary coded message, which has been named the beacon in the galaxy, has information about life on Earth, the solar system, and what humans look like. Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, joins me to discuss the allegations of war crimes against Russia and what more can be done to hold Vladimir Putin to account for the invasion of Ukraine. But first, one of the world's most populated cities is under complete lockdown. An estimated 26 million people in Shanghai are confined to their homes as the city battles an outbreak of COVID-19 and sticks to its stringent zero-COVID policy. We speak to a Canadian in Shanghai about what life is like under lockdown in China. Well, let's head to Shanghai now. Combine one of the most populated cities in the world with a national zero-COVID policy, and it can lead to some pretty extreme sites, such as the case in Shanghai, China's most populous city, where a COVID outbreak has seen the entire city go into lockdown. It is a big, bustling, city-never-sleeps kind of place, Shanghai. I've spent quite a bit of time there. Uh, restrictions were due to end for much of the city this week, but on Tuesday, it's Thursday now, authorities there said that they would extend them indefinitely as they await the results of a citywide testing effort that saw samples taken from almost 26 million people in just 24 hours. The logistical challenges required to confine that many people to their homes while keeping them fed, of course, is massive. And there has been signs of growing public frustration. China is sticking to its zero-tolerance approach, mandating lockdowns, mass testing, and the compulsory isolation of suspected cases and close contacts. Well, joining me now from Shanghai is Canadian Carl Bro. He's the CEO of Simon Engineering. Carl, thank you so much for your time. And I, I guess it's Thursday morning there, so another day of, of, of lockdowns. Yes, exactly. Yes, we're Thursday. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And yes, it's uh, Thursday morning, 1030. So tell me what it's been like. I mean, I've been to Shanghai. It is literally one of the busiest cities I've ever set foot in. It's hard to imagine it being shut down, but I gather that's more or less what's happened. Yes, really. And it's it's true, you know, especially even through the the last two years of the pandemic. I mean, Shanghai has essentially been pretty well, pretty much close to normal. I mean, people, you know, the, the stores were bustling. We we're going to restaurants. We we're going to bars, you know, essentially leading, of course, working. Uh, we have a pretty, we had pretty much a normal life. And it's really strange to see this. I mean, and like you were mentioning, it is by now. It was a, initially was to be first Pudong, like half the city was supposed to shut down or lock down about a week ago. And then it was supposed to reopen again and have Pushi, which is the other half where I live, to be the Guander lockdown. But now, uh, well, Pudong just didn't open up. And then we actually, Pushi actually started earlier. And, uh, and now the whole city is locked down. So the streets, you see it. Uh, I don't know if you've seen some of those videos where you have the drones going yeah. over the city. The streets are empty. The, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a true... Plus here, when they say lockdown, it's really locked down. So we're, we're at home. We cannot exit our, our condominium. Of course, I'm lucky, but because we have a, a courtyard, so we can go in our courtyard, but we cannot exit home. We're at the whole city of Shanghai, like you were mentioning, 25, 26 million people are sitting at home. I mean, that creates, a, 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 as it's been seen in numerous places, a huge amount of logistical issues, the least of which is how do you eat? I mean, how do you do your day? How do you grocery shop? How do you get food in the house? Yes. So, well, 
even more so because when they announced the lockdown, uh, it was supposed to be a five-day lockdown with half the city, right? So most of the people here, even here in our residential compound, most people were preparing for five days, right? It's been already, uh, well, obviously, already more than that. So now people are, are, are starting to complain. Now, to, now, it's been twice already that actually, <laughs> talking of logistical challenges, actually, the there are i mean our local government they sent groceries to us so just uh i guess about five days ago we received a bag of groceries with you know meat chicken uh, potatoes uh you know everything essentially and then we received another one yesterday so can you imagine so i'm not sure i don't want to say it's something that goes beyond us but as far as i know in our residential compound and just about everybody i know last few days actually we're being and it's free. So so we receive a bag of or it's a box in that case, but we received the box of groceries yesterday. So the the, the government is actually feeding the, the population just to avoid, you know, a bigger problem, which would be people running out of food, I guess. I guess, I mean, have you noticed a sense of frustration? Maybe we're reading about a sense of frustration. I guess, uh, you know, when you have that many people and you're trying to provide for that many people, uh, there are always going to be stories where things go wrong. But are you sensing the frustration or is everyone just sort of hunkered down now, hoping this will end soon? Well, I'm, I guess I'm lucky in a way that I have more visibility as to how people are feeling because I'm also a volunteer. So, so that means that, for example, when we do PCR testing here in our neighborhood, uh, you know, you got the, I don't know, I'm sure you've seen the images of, you know, people in the white uh, hazmat suits, they call us the big whites. Uh, so I'm, I'm actually a big white, uh, Dabai, uh, here right. in, in Shanghai. So, so, so. Uh, to answer your question about frustration. So I'm l- lucky in a way because, you know, I'm there and I'm essentially my role in, in when we do volunteer work is to help the people, uh, especially the elderly, uh, upload the app and be able to to have the QR code ready so they can usually essentially serve as ID as they do their PCR testing. But my point is that, well, I would say it's true to say by, by far, by far, the population in general really supports its, I mean, it's probably unusual for maybe for for your audience but still here by far they really support the zero covid policy i think they really support uh everything that's going on but it's for the first time i'm starting to see a little bit of frustration so you could hear you know some people are, are there and they just and you know they they've been stuck at home now for a while so for them you know it creates a bit of anxiety you know you're stuck at home you can't go out so there's a bit of a psychological uh aspect to it as well but i could i could for the first time really yesterday when we were doing pcr testing during the day uh i could feel especially some of the younger people some of the you know people that just have sort of a more of a <laughs> that attitude i guess they are starting to say you know is does it really make sense you know because i don't know if you know but yesterday Yesterday, we had almost 20,000 cases just in Shanghai, in one city, I think 19,900 something. So, so people are saying, well, how does, how does that mathematically work? You know, you have a city that was on full lockdown for seven days. So people are staying at home. There's no contacts and we still have 20,000 cases per day. So you, you, I mean, to answer your question, long answer, but yes, I think they're starting to be a bit of seed of frustration, especially from the younger people are, you know, sort of young professional types here in Shanghai. 
I'm speaking with Canadian Carl Bro. He's the CEO of Simon Engineering. He's a Shanghai resident. Uh, and we're talking about the lockdown of that city. 26 million, 25, 26 million people there. It is a city that literally never sleeps. And right now it's under lockdown again today, uh, Thursday there. I, it's fascinating that you're a volunteer because one of the questions I had was how do you PCR test 25 million people? And you would know because you're right there on the front lines doing it. Yes, it's uh, and it's very interesting, right? So, so to be able to do that, the logistical challenge is amazing, right? Because they're doing uh, the way it works is the uh, well, it depends a little bit, but in our compound here, they alternate. So one day we receive a uh, self test that we somebody just essentially hangs it on the on the door, and then during the day we need to do a self test and we need to submit the self test to I guess a bit what you could call maybe like a community center or something like this. It's not really government, but it's sort of the, the what manages the community here. Normally it would be more in terms of you know managing uh, garbage removal and things like this, but now it, they're playing that role. So so we get the self test, we take a picture, and we send it to the we just essentially online submit our picture and then it's okay but then of course it's the second day then it's made by a doctor so then you have or it's probably a nurse they call them doctors but i think they're actually either doctors or nurses and then so you have uh thousands of course of i mean because it's the whole i mean the whole population will do testing right so it's 25 i'm not sure exact number but 23 million tests in one day not the two months right in one day every two days That's so you remarkable. got thousands thousands of these uh, nurses and doctors coming in in our in our neighborhood here we have uh, i'm not sure maybe five thousand people living in our neighborhood i think the exact number is somewhere between four or five thousand so there was maybe 10 or 15 of those doctors coming in and then you got an army i think we're like 150 or 100 uh, volunteers uh, that are essentially helping so you know so you we, we would so how does it work so we bring a little table there you know and then there's the the equipment that's coming in essentially for doing the pcr testing the qr code the little machine and you know the the tubes everything so we received that we set that up and then there's a line there's a uh, you know essentially so we set there was maybe four or five of those little if you want uh, uh, temporary uh, PCR testing centers, and then and then for every one doctor, you probably have maybe a fifteen or twenty volunteers, like I was, and then uh, right. we essentially just and then you have people coming out, and then we do testing, and that's how it works. And if you're just tuning into the conversation, I'm speaking with Carl Bro. He's the CEO of Simon Engineering and a Canadian living in Shanghai. We're talking about this massive, very busy city, completely locked down right now because of a surge of COVID cases and China's zero tolerance policy, which essentially means isolating and confining until you can eradicate uh, a very virulent virus at this point, Omicron. Uh, Carl, we've been reading a lot about, uh, someone asked me if the drones were real, and I gather they are indeed real. If you've seen these videos of drones circulating at night, telling people to get back in the house if they're out on their balconies, for instance. Uh, I don't know. I only saw, I saw the same video, so I've never yeah. seen a, a drone, but I've seen the video. So uh, yeah. it's hard to say the video is real. I would, yeah. I would think it's probably more of a, uh, of a, uh, something very sort of local. I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I haven't seen it outside my window and right. I essentially live outside in my courtyard, but <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we'll, 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 let, uh, we'll let people figure out whether that drone was real or not. Tell me a bit about, I mean, just there has been talk about the quarantine facilities. So if you test positive, you essentially have to go into one of these facilities, whether you're asymptomatic or symptomatic, but you end up somewhere outside of your home. Is that right? 
Uh, well, yes, and it starts out from something which I think is quite interesting. Uh, you know, when when you look at the statistics in Canada of the proportion out of say 100 people who are uh, tested positive to C Omicron or BA2, uh, uh, you know, there's a, there's a quite a big proportion of those which are asymptomatic. I'm not sure the number, but maybe you know 50-50 or something. Mm-hmm. Here. Uh, because the sampling is 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 uh, it's a total sampling, right? So when you right. designate say a district, hundred percent of the people there would be tested. So it's not the subset of people who think maybe they have symptoms or you know that some there's a reason for them to do testing. What it turns out is that I think it's like ninety eight or even ninety nine percent of the people who test positive are are asymptomatic. It's an amazing wow. number. It's it's so so then that brings in two things. So the first one is what you just said, which is okay. So the government is sort of thinking, well, well so it's what we've been hearing, and essentially the Canadian, I guess, experience shows, uh, among other experiences, that you know the it's not that virulent. It's not as you know as dangerous as obviously the the previous sort of variants were uh, just being more contagious. So they did two things. The first one is, yes, so you, it's, they don't go to hospital, right? Those uh, asymptomatic. So they go to, I guess, uh, I've, I've never, I don't know of nobody with, I unfortunately don't know of people, you know, in my close to me that are tested positive. But uh, but I, I I know they exist. So so they reconvert the sort of a, a a large stadium not too far from here to become a place essentially where they they quarantine these asymptomatic cases there for I'm not sure how long maybe a week or two. Mm-hmm. So that that is true. Uh, the second thing is that is bringing in a lot of uh, there. So there's a lot of talk uh, online and even in the official media in terms of the strategy now, you know, which is the obvious, you know, I was in Canada at the end of, of, of December. I was in Quebec more specifically where things were sort of where Omicron was hitting and the numbers were shooting up. And the first reaction of the government is essentially to, to, to make the measures even more stringent, right? You, so we travel less, you do this and that, and which is, which is what's happening now in Shanghai. In Canada, a few weeks later, it sort of went the other way. Say, okay, well, I guess the measures won't work, so we'll just open it again and you know live with it. And I'm not sure, but I sort of have a feeling in the official media that there's a little bit of talk now of maybe talking about a bit, about the zero COVID strategy. I'm not sure if that's going to be the case here as well, but I'm thinking uh, because of those numbers that that could change. Right. I, I mean, from a business standpoint, and this, like, we have a few minutes left here, Carl, but I mean, you own a business. Has it had any impact? Are we going to see an impact here with what's happening? I mean, China is still such an important part of the global economic engine. Is this going to hit in any way uh, supply chain issues? There's already supply chain issues, obviously. Uh, I think so, but I think it's not going to be significant in the large frame of things. I think I can take it as an example, Shenzhen. So Shenzhen went through what Shanghai is going through now, uh, I guess about a month ago now. So they went into total lockdown. It's almost the same thing as Shanghai. And of course, Shenzhen is a big industrial center. Shanghai, I guess, could be more considered as a more like a financial services center. So they went through a shutdown and then uh, and then they were looking at the numbers very much like they're here so as long as the numbers were going up in terms of cases per day there were staying in the lockdown but then if you lock down a whole city at some point you know it's 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 got to come down so and when it started to come down actually Shenzhen just for essentially just because there's a supply chain but here it's the economy right so I mean you, you just can't stop the economy of our you know 25 million dollar uh, 25 million uh, population city for 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 that long so as start as soon as the the, the numbers keep 
start to go down. If we look at Shenzhen, then they reopen very, very quickly. How has it been for you? I mean, how are you holding up? I guess you get to volunteer, so you get out of the house. But how are you holding up in in this in this lockdown? Considering it's been extended, and and uh, you know, how are you and and everyone around you uh, coping? Uh, I I mean, we're lucky because we have a uh, because most. As you know, you know most uh, apartments or condominiums. I own a home here, but uh, uh, typically is 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 not very big, and you some of them even have closed down their their balcony. But I'm lucky because I can go out. I can be outside. I would tell you that because I just came back from Canada, right in in January. So I was two weeks in real lockdown in a hotel, and that psychologically becomes very difficult. So, but I think psychologically, just the fact that I'm able to be outside is is probably not representative of what most people here in Shanghai are living because if I look at sort of the groups and the people talking I think uh, I think there's a bit of a psychological toll now you know and then essentially yes it's true that the government is sending food out but you know it's it's a weird anxiety right to be stuck inside a sort of a small apartment and starting to think about if you're going to be running out of food right so you you put that on the scale of 25 million people I think there's a lot of anxiety I can feel it around me yeah, I can imagine. Well, well uh, Carl, I wish you the best of luck. Um, it's fascinating to hear all about what's happening in Shanghai. Uh, my memories of Shanghai, are, of course, is always being in a huge crowd of people and the fact that the Shanghainese are pretty outspoken about things. So if they're angry, they'll tell you. Uh, so I can imagine there's probably some of that going on too. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> more and more. Carl Bro. Yeah, thank you so much. Good luck. I, I'm Obviously, we hope this lockdown ends sooner than later. Uh, but uh, But good luck and thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for shedding some light on what's going on there. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Nearly 100 million years ago, a mighty long time ago, the landscape of Western Canada was very different. And so were the creatures that roamed around it. Among them, dinosaurs, of course, but also giant crocodiles. And I mean big, 9 to 12 meters, 30 or 40 feet long, massive. A recent article in Historical Biology shows evidence, tracks really, left by those big crocs in the peace region of northeastern BC. Tracks made when they scraped the mud-filled bottoms of lakes and rivers with their claws. It is a fascinating discovery and a fascinating story. And joining me to tell us all about it is Guy Plint. He's a professor of geology at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario, and one of the authors of that research. Guy Plint, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And joining me now with more on this fascinating story is Guy Plint. He's a professor of geology at the University of Western Ontario, and he's obviously done the research on this. Uh, professor Plint, this is a really, I mean, the headline itself is fascinating, but tell me a bit about, about giant crocodiles roaming what is today's British Columbia. Yeah, indeed. It's, it's, um, it's a remarkable story. It, it began about uh, back in 2002, uh, where some colleagues of mine up in Tumblr Ridge in British Columbia, um, Charles Helm, who was the, the town doctor turned paleontologist, and another colleague of mine, uh, Rich McRae, who used to run the Tumblr Ridge Museum, they were looking at fallen blocks of rock on the roadside um, north of Tumblr Ridge and noticed uh, a number of big dinosaur tracks in these, in these fallen blocks. And over the years, they went back, and as each winter thaw took place, the more blocks would fall down. And it wasn't until about 2017 when they discovered these large scratch marks that looked like some, some claws had been dragged over a, a muddy substrate. And that set them thinking about it. And it was 2017 when I first came to look at this site. 
um, with the specific intent of trying to figure out what was the, the sedimentary environment, as well as the animals that were walking around. So um, I, I spent uh, quite a bit of time over the 2017 and then again in 2021. And um, it's pretty clear that there was a, a very interesting mixture of circumstances. We were looking at some sedimentary rocks laid down on a river floodplain and on the banks of rivers. And it was clear that there were times when animals were walking around, big dinosaurs were tromping around, making their footprints in, in the mud. And then there were other times uh, on very closely uh, associated surfaces, which had these what we call swim tracks. And they were made by an animal swimming over the bottom. Every now and again, its claws would touch the bottom and it would scratch and scrape on the bottom as if it was sculling along. And, and about the only thing that does this on this, on this scale are, are large crocodiles. So uh, we came to the conclusion that sometimes this floodplain was flooded, perhaps with seasonal river floods, and the crocs were swimming around. And at other times, the floodplain lakes drained away and dinosaurs were walking around. So it was a very interesting mixture of, of swimming and walking activity. It's certainly not the kind of thing a human would want to wander into, but luckily I gather this happened a very long time ago. <laughs> yeah, the, the, these sediments are about 97 million years old, deposited during the Upper Cretaceous period. So, um, yeah, at, at that time, we would have to forget the mountains of British Columbia and, and take away all the snow and ice and imagine a climate that was rather temperate, quite wet, uh, and a very low-lying coastal plain with um, rivers carrying sediment from the ancestral Rocky Mountains in the west and dumping it into what we call the Western Interior Seaway, which was this shallow sea that extended from the polar ocean in the north all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, and all the prairie provinces were flooded. So rivers built deltas on the west side of this seaway and, and on those low-lying delta plains, which were heavily vegetated, we had a host of dinosaurs marching around, some eating the vegetation and some eating the other dinosaurs. How much different, I mean, how much different was the, was the topography, was the climate? back? What would be comparable to now? It would be comparable probably to something in the sort of southern United States, not quite as steamy as, as Florida, perhaps, but we reckon average temperatures somewhere in the sort of 15 to 20 degrees range, uh, perhaps a little light frost on a cold winter's night, but no deep snow. Uh, the mountains would have been somewhat further to the west than they are now. So they've been pushed forward the intervening 100 million years. Um, so it would have been a, a low-lying, featureless landscape. Um, perhaps uh, if you'd gone down on the Mississippi Delta today, uh, you would have similar sort of conditions with waterlogged soils, a lot of swampy vegetation, river channels, lakes, abandoned channels, that kind of thing. And, you know, it's, you, you can find, of course, crocodiles and alligators in the U.S. today. So they're still there. Uh, they've retreated somewhat from northern British Columbia. <laughs> yes, yes, they have. Yes, they <laughs> Happily have. for the inhabitants. <laughs> yes, thankfully. Um, I remember seeing, you know, you remember seeing uh, gators, particularly in Florida and so on. These were massive. I mean, from what I've read, these were very large crocodiles. Yeah, we, we, we came to that conclusion. Um, my colleagues, um, Charles Helm in Tumblr Ridge and Martin Lockley in the University of Denver, they're, the, they're serious track specialists. I'm, I'm the guy who does the sand and the mud, but um, they found that there's a relationship um, between the spacing between the claws on modern crocodiles and, and, and the basically the bigger they get, the spacing between the claws is proportional to the length of the body in, in a general sense. So what we did is we, we measured the spacing between the claw marks that were made in the, in the bottom of this lake 
and simply plug that into a into a kind of a graph that extrapolates the the length of the of the total beast. And to our surprise, these things were coming out at a conservative nine meters and and possibly up to twelve meters, which is about twice the size of a modern saltwater croc, which is the biggest croc around today. So a truly fearsome beast. Yeah, I mean that that's that is massive. I gather though that. Uh, crocs of that size have been recorded in the past that this is not unique but could be earlier than some of the other rec- uh, recorded gigantism in crocodiles yeah. that we've seen no this is absolutely true in the in the united states and down in mexico we have quite a good record of, of giant crocodiles a beast called dinosuchus and those are known from rocks uh, are about 84 million years old and there's a good bone and tooth record for them. As you come north into Canada, the, the body fossils disappear. And it was, you know, I think the discovery that we made was the first instance where we can say with some confidence that we have something like Dinosuchus, probably not the same species, but, you know, kind of grand, granddaddy of a Dinosuchus living much further north and something like 13 million years earlier. So um, one of the problems we have in, in, in sort of northern British Columbia and, and Alberta is that the, the, the fossil record of dinosaur bones, croc bones, is not very good. And we think this is because uh, it was a humid climate. There was a lot of vegetation and rotting vegetation produces uh, humic acids in the soil water. So when you bury a bone in, in acidic water, it'll dissolve, you know. So we find very little in the way of, of bone material in these rocks. Um, I've been looking at this unit called the Dunvegan Formation, which is where we find our tracks. And over you know, 35 years working on these rocks, I found hundreds and hundreds of dinosaur tracks, but a couple of scrappy bones, and that's about it. You know? So they simply don't preserve. Um, down in the southern Alberta, around you know, the Drumheller, Tyrrell Museum area, there's fantastic bone preservation. But in the south, the climate was warmer and drier. The soils, the soils were much more alkaline, so the bones don't dissolve. So that accounts for why there's such a, 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 a treasure trove of bones in the Drumheller area and such a scarcity up in northern British Columbia. I'm speaking with Guy Plint, professor of geology at the University of Western Ontario. We're talking about the discovery of tracks uh, made by giant crocodiles uh, up to 12 meters long. Uh, that would have roamed uh, northeastern BC uh, 97 million years ago during the uh, Cretaceous period, and just what that signifies. So I, I guess there, there is, I mean, there is a novel, some other than the fact that these are massive, massive crocodiles, there is a certain understanding we're developing now of, of how this, what kind of um, species would have coexisted. Back yeah, then. I mean, the, the, the track record here is, is very interesting, despite the fact we have very little bone material. Um, one thing that was very intriguing for me looking at these rocks as a sedimentologist was that um, there's clearly evidence that um, the behavior and the type of tracks that the animals were making was, was very dependent on the nature of the substrate. So, for example, we can see in some, some, some muddy lake sediments, there were clearly tracks made by probably ankylosaurs, these big armored dinosaurs with the spikes around the edge and the club on the tail. These were wading around in in these sediments, making very sort of squishy, ill-defined tracks, you know, just as, you know, kid in Wellington boots tromping around in a muddy puddle. Um, We find things like roots growing in, in in the mud so that there was probably vegetation growing in these lakes. So we can imagine these ankylosaurs tromping about in the mud, feeding but then we find on top of that layer with the sort of squishy deformation, we find um, other tracks. 
that are very poorly defined. And these were almost certainly made when the lake dried out again, the dinosaurs were marching around on the surface. But those tracks don't really look like dinosaur tracks anymore. They're kind of vague impressions. So what we think happened was that a flood came across the surface and eroded that first generation of tracks. Um, but then we find that the surface must have submerged again because it's on that horizon, in this muddy sediment, that we find these beautiful scratch marks where the swimming crocodiles were kind of pouring and, and sculling across the bottom of a shallow lake. So it drowns again. But the important point is that the, the mud had by that time become quite firm. So it, it was a bit like... Um, uh, Goldilocks and the porridge, you know, that some is too hot and some is too cold and, and some was just right. In this case, we had mud that was not too soft, that it just would make sort of vague impressions. It was not so hard, you couldn't scratch it. It was it was just right. Perhaps the consistency of, of butter or soap or something like that. Well, so the crocodiles were, were, were sculling across the bottom, leaving these scratch marks, which had such detail in them. You can see the individual scale marks from their claws and, and, and their feet. So we know they were swimming around for a while. But then superimposed on the swimming marks, we find beautiful uh, tracks of ankylosaurs and, and ornithopod dinosaurs, which would have been herbivores, and, and they are overprinted on the dinosaur on the swimming tracks. So uh, again, the mud must have been subaerial, drained dry, but again, not too soft because the, the scales on the bottom of the dinosaur's feet are preserved. We get these little dimply impressions. So there we can have a lake that had crocs in it, then it drained away, then the, 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 the dinosaurs were walking around, and then maybe also the crocodiles. There are some tracks that may also be crocodile walking tracks. And then a river nearby started to spew sand out onto the floodplain and buried the tracks in sand, which is good because that's why we see them preserved. Because tracks in mud don't preserve, they have to be buried in sand, sand turns to rock, and then we see the tracks on the bottom of the sand. So we so you, can see. So, you, you can actually still see the scales. You can still Lovely. see the impressions of the scales. It's absolutely incredible. And, and that requires a mud of a just perfect consistency, like plasticine, you know, not too hard, not too soft. <laughs> this is this. I mean, I would have to say that it would be like, it'd be like striking gold in, in your situation. Yeah. It's, it's geological serendipity. You know, there, there must have, the millions of tracks must have been made, you know, and of course not all are preserved. Most are made and, and are buried or washed away. But in these river floodplains, it's an ideal circumstance because the floodplains beside the rivers would accumulate muddy sediment, but sometimes the rivers would break their banks and they would produce what we call a crevasse splay, where a bunch of sand, <clears throat> excuse me, gets washed out onto the floodplain and it buries the mud. And anything that was walking in the mud, leaving tracks, those tracks are then cast. So you imagine around, you know, cows around a water tank, you know, that it's all trampled to death. If you then kind of covered that with plaster of Paris and then peeled it off, you would see all the impressions of the tracks on the bottom of the plaster of Paris. And this is what geology does for us. These natural occurrences of flooding makes a, a perfect record of, of what was walking on the mud. Where are these tracks now or where have we sent these tracks? Well, the, these tracks, the, the biggest and, and best, some of the blocks weigh 20 tonnes. And um, my colleague, Charles Helm uh, in Tumblr Ridge, he was a very persuasive gentleman, um, talked um, a company, La Prairie Crane, into donating a, a crane and an enormous truck. And he also got the BC uh, Highway Department to close the road for half a day. <laughs> and they went in there with giant slings and, and hauled up four of these enormous blocks and took them off to Tumblr Ridge. So they're now in the museum at Tumblr Ridge. They're so big and heavy, they didn't put them inside. They'd fall through the floor, I think. But they have them outside and they're covered up with tarpaulins to keep the frost and snow off them. 
but they're 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 planning to have uh, to build some kind of a some kind of display case or facility that would show these things to advantage. But uh, so next time, uh, next they're, in time safe, a, they're in safe hands anyway. I, 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 next time a British Columbian spots a croc anywhere, I suppose it would be safe to remember that one of its ancestors roamed these very these this very province nearly a hundred yes. million years ago. That's right, absolutely. Because they are the same, right? I mean, it's the same. Well, they're, the same, they're more they're, or less. They're, they're not the same species, certainly. But I mean, the the basic the basic body plan of a crocodile is very conservative. They've been around since the Triassic period, well over two hundred million years, and they've obviously figured out a way to survive, and they just keep on doing it. I mean, it must have been. We, we're starting to think of of a dinosaur. Sorry, the 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 crocodiles as being the the, the top predators. And they would be lurking in these lakes and sloughs and you know, a dinosaur comes down to drink and this beast rears up and grabs it by the nose and drags it down and drowns it. It's really rather horrible. Um, I mean, we do find a very few rare tracks of large uh, theropods, these big sort of a smaller version of T-Rex. Uh, the T-Rex hadn't been invented in those days, but there was some cousins of those roaming around. But their tracks are very, very rare. But we suspect that these crocodiles were having a grand old time feasting on unwary dinosaurs. <laughs> so um, it's quite horrible to watch them praying. When you see the African ones dragging wildebeest and antelope into rivers and drowning them. It's, uh, yeah. Guy Plint, yeah. it's been a fascinating uh, look back into um, you know the, the fauna of uh, 100 million years ago in British Columbia. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your research with us. Thank you so much for your interest. Well, we learned today that one of Canada's original six astronauts had died. Bjarni Trigvison was born in Iceland but grew up in Vancouver. He was one of the six Canadian astronauts selected in December 1983, the originals. He flew aboard Space Shuttle Discovery on August 7th, 1997 as a payload specialist. He spent 11 days in space where he successfully operated a Canadian technology he had helped develop, the microgravity vibration isolation mount. From orbit, back then, in 1997, he told reporters the space program was key to Canada's economic future. Some of the science is going to be done on the International Space Station is going to be added to a lot of the work that is currently done in labs on the ground. And it really is imperative that we be a, a significant part of that because otherwise, you know, we're just not going to have the same capability economically in the decades to come. That was Bjarni Trigvison speaking back in 1997 aboard the Space Shuttle Discovery. Chris Hadfield said today of Trigvison, lost a good friend today, pioneer astronaut, engineer's engineer, proud parent, inventor, test pilot, a kind, funny, original man. And the Canadian Space Agency said he'll be remembered for his humor, dedication, and originality. Trigvison died on Monday. He was 76 years old. Well, staying in space... If you could have a conversation with an alien, what would you say? Well, that's exactly what scientists have been looking into. They've come up with this special message to send to space, which they hope will one day reach something, someone, aliens. The binary coded message, which has been named the beacon in the galaxy, has information about life on Earth, the solar system, what humans look like, the rules of chess, believe it or not. It also invites any extraterrestrial beings who come across it to respond. Now, this isn't the first time this has been done. It was done back in 1974 in a significantly less complex way, I understand. But to tell us all about it, I'm joined by Kristen Fay, uh, a science systems engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. 
Thank you for having me. This is always fascinating um, when these things are done. How did the idea to create a new message come about? Yeah, so just to get started here, um, as a little bit of a disclaimer, I'm not speaking on behalf of NASA as an agency, and all of my viewpoints right. are my own. But this yeah. is obviously an exciting um, conversation that lots of different people are interested in. So um, our message and our motivation for this is, firstly, is that it's been nearly 50 years since that first message from Arecibo um, was broadcasted. And since then, the field of exoplanets has just exponentially increased. Um, we're at nearly 5,000 confirmed exoplanets, and we're expecting about another 5,000 more in the coming years. So um, certainly now is the time to start thinking about uh, our place in the galaxy and potential life on other planets. So... If you could describe to me what the message is, because I was, I, you know, obviously thinking back to 74, you were th- I was thinking, you know, bearing an eight-track cassette or something. I mean, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. But w- tell me a bit about the message uh, and how it's composed and what it contains. Yeah, so just to compare to the 1974 message and give some background, um, they more or less wanted to provide a technological demonstration of the radio telescope. Um, so that was their first initial intention. Their message was smaller, more low resolution, um, whereas ours contains a lot more information. So we provide uh, data such as where we're located in the galaxy, where Earth is located in the solar system, building blocks of DNA, what we think our understanding of physics is, and even images such as man and woman. That's, I mean, how was that decided? I mean, or, or how is it, should I really ask, what language is it in? So it's in binary, um, which we believe, I mean, it's hard to kind of assume what language aliens would speak, right? Um, Indeed. But assuming that they have some sort of mathematical um, capability, we believe that binary would be the best way to send this message via radio telescope. Um, and what we decided to send in the message was based on, first of all, that Arecibo message, but also conversations within our team and the astrophysical community. Um, what we're broadcasting is very straightforward, scientific. Um, it's really just a a hello, this is who we are. It's a fascinating idea, obviously. Um, I understand that what contained within it, within it, at least, are the rules to the game of chess. Is that right? So this is something we've talked about. So not in the initial message, ah. but we have thought about, you know, in Carl Sagan's golden disc, he had music and language and... Um, if we decided that we wanted to send follow-up information to extraterrestrial right. intelligence, yeah, we could provide, you know, game of chess or um, other maybe recreational activities that humans <laughs> partake in. That's uh, it's interesting. I mean, I suppose you could at this point you could send them Wordle maybe, or but no, but chess is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
how will this be sent? I know you're not sending yourselves, but similar to how it was done the first time, uh, this is going to be transmitted by somebody else. Yeah, so this is a meant to be an interstellar radio message. So long wave radio frequencies uh, penetrate interstellar dust. So that's why we think it's a appropriate um, medium to do it via radio telescopes. And how and how is that? How does that work precisely? If you can forgive the uh, the ignorance. So one of the challenges is that since Arecibo was decommissioned or was, um, you know, <laughs> unfortunately broken during one of the hurricanes in Puerto Rico, we don't necessarily have the capability to send it out on our current radio telescopes. So this work is meant to kind of get ahead of the game. So then when we do have these larger new radio telescopes, um, they're working on them in the United States and China. Uh, we will already be ready to have this message to send out to them. Um, there is a warning in the past, was there not? From, from I mean, this has come up. These are there's a lot of there's a lot of bit, a lot's been written already about this project, about this idea, and it, a lot of the articles go back to this warning that Stephen Hawking brought up about not contacting or not reaching <laughs> out this way. Um, how was that taken into consideration, and what what do you make of that? Yeah, there's a lot of public opinion on this. Um, and that's yeah. part of our intention, too, is to really start this discussion on if we should be sending this, but also what we should be including. Um, so I can provide my personal <laughs> opinion. Sure, sure. Which is, yeah. As much as I respect Stephen Hawking, obviously he's an icon. Um, I think that if there were an extraterrestrial intelligence that is able to reach Earth, even if they are nefarious, this message is in no way uh, uh, provoking them in any way. Right. Uh, right. So yeah. they wouldn't really have reason for to you know, annihilate mankind. Um, the other <laughs> thing is the timescale is so long. So even if we send it out now, it might not be until hundreds or thousands of years later that anyone would even be able to receive it or respond to it. So it's certainly not a uh, you know, texting back and forth kind of situation here. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah uh, indeed. Yes, yes. It wouldn't be one of those situations where you're expecting an immediate response. I'm speaking with Kristen Fay, a space system, science systems engineer at uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He was not here speaking on behalf of NASA, but on behalf of her own uh, curiosity, or at least her own expertise in, in this subject that we are discussing, which is the idea of sending a message, a binary coded message called the beacon in the galaxy, which has information about all sorts of things, essentially a what's what about life on earth, the solar system, what humans look like. And it invites any being out there who may come across it uh, to respond. And and I, I was wondering if you've looked into what the, I mean, no one's responded to the 1974 one, I gather, or obviously, um, how that factored into your calculations, because I understand from just from reading through the different articles that have been written about this, and there have been a lot of articles, by the way, congratulations, um, that this one was sort of tailor-made to be a bit more effective than the last one, at least in reaching further. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So something that we also built upon is our previous paper that we published. And in that work, we used a model to simulate where exactly in the Milky Way we think 
extraterrestrial intelligence would be most prevalent. So we found kind of the coordinates that we should be sending this to, which is about 13,000 light years from the center of the galaxy. Um, so that's also an improvement from the 1974 version as well. So how long does it take to send said message? In terms of the time frame, when we plan on sending it, um, there is no exact time frame from our end, but to receive it, it really depends on where in the galaxy <laughs> life would be. Um, obviously, the distances are incomprehensible, really, <laughs> to humans. Yeah. So, um, as we talked about before, the time frame is really something that needs to be accounted for when we think about even receiving a message back. So, Kristen, I mean, this is, of course, the stuff of of many, many a book and more than many, many a movie. Uh, but how does the discussion about life elsewhere take place in an environment as um, sophisticated as yours, for instance? Yeah, that's a good question, because it can feel very sci-fi, right? Um, yeah. So when we're talking about, you know, the Fermi paradox and, you know, I'm even hesitant to say alien, but, you know, we say yeah. extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, mm. I think the field in general is a little bit more open to having these discussions, again, because we've started to find more exoplanets. And I think the public as well is starting to, you know, not necessarily see this type of work as being totally strange and out there, <laughs> but a little bit more accepting. So that's why we're able to um, actually put some more research into this. And I guess in that sense, it really does separate itself from what we think of, you know, you know, obviously researching this day or looking into today, I was thinking about, you know, aliens or ET or, you know, all the things that people who don't study this think about. Uh -huh. um, but, but within those circumstances, I guess this is a conversation we, we should be having because you're right, as we double the number of exoplanets that we know exist, uh, our ability to reach further and further into out there uh, makes this more and more likely, I would think. And that's just... Yeah, in terms of the likelihood, even, you know, major figures in history have really predicted this, like Frank Drake and Carl Sagan were the original um, pioneers of the first message. Um, and clearly, Stephen Hawking was thinking about this when he was alive. So, yeah, we do think life could be quite prevalent. Um, again, leading back to that Fermi paradox, though, where is everybody? <laughs> There's that's that is the eternal question, is it not? Um, and, and this must be exciting for you too, just as an individual, um, to be working. Oh, with totally. This. Yeah, I'm so honored to even work on something that you know it's like standing on the shoulder of giants kind of a thing. Um, and yeah, we hope to just start this as a discussion for the international community, everyone globally really should have input on if we're sending a message as Earth, as a species of humans, um, you know, we want to make sure that everyone has agreed upon this. So, but yeah, personally, I'm thrilled to work on this type of work. And has that been something, have you looked back a lot at the 1974 experiment? I remember when that, when that telescope collapsed, obviously, and it came up again that this message had been sent. Uh, how much inspiration did you derive from that original attempt? Oh, yeah. I mean, inspiration from that and also even the golden disc that right. Carl Sagan also worked on. Um, at JPL, we have um, in our auditorium like a replica copy. So I remember oh, really? when I first started, I would, you know, go over there and look at it. And yeah, it's just 
so fun being surrounded by all this and getting to work on, you know, extraterrestrial research. Yeah, the Jet Propulsion Library. That, that I didn't realize you had. A, you, of course, you have an acronym for it, the JPL. That's great. Um, yeah. Kristen Faye, thank you so much for your time. And and so we don't know exactly. This is still in the in the conceptual stage, right? We don't know exactly when this will be transmitted, so to speak. Correct. Yes, we mm-hmm. we publish this open source. Um, and again, we just want to open up that discussion and kind of you know provide the media with as much information as possible to hopefully have everyone on the same page for broadcasting to potential life. Kristen Fay, it is a fascinating project. Best of luck. Um, it is, I mean, a lot of it's, you know, a lot of it is just fantastic kind of stuff. It's really exciting to hear about and uh, good luck. We look forward to watching this progress. Thank you so much. We're excited as well on, on the team. <laughs> Well, to the war in Ukraine now, the U.S. announced further sanctions against Russia today in retaliation for war crimes, including against Russian banks and Vladimir Putin's two adult daughters. President Biden also announced more weapons for Ukraine. Advanced drones, laser-guided rocket systems. Yesterday, I signed another package to send more javelin missiles, those shoulder-mounted missiles that can take out tanks and armored vehicles. Well, Britain also announced new sanctions today. Canada is expected to announce new sanctions soon. This all comes as the UN General Assembly votes tomorrow on whether to suspend Russia from the UN's Human Rights Council. With more on tomorrow's vote, what can be done to try to hold Russia to account for its continued attacks on Ukrainian civilians? Joining me now is Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray. Thank you so much for being here tonight, Ambassador Ray. Um, we've seen condemnation for the last 72 hours of Russia's, the atrocities committed in the suburbs of Kiev and elsewhere of Kiev. Uh, yet today we're seeing more shelling of residential neighborhoods in the East. The message doesn't seem to be being heard. What more can we do to pressure Russia to stop? Well, I think that's the question of the hour, because I think it's, it's obvious to everybody that, uh, after five weeks um, and, and increasing evidence of, of atrocities, as, as, uh, as you've mentioned, uh, Russia hasn't changed its, its, uh, its approach, uh, except it's focusing a little bit more on the eastern part of the, of the country. But let's be clear, Russia is invading the east, they're invading the south, they're invading the north, and they're bombing and shelling Odessa in the west. So, I mean, they're, they're, the idea that somehow... This is easing up, or Russia is uh, changing its its war aims, or whatever. I think it's uh, I think is overdone. I, I I don't think it's accurate, and I think the the most compelling problem is that I don't believe Russia accepts the notion that Ukraine is an independent nation. I think as an empire, they just have not accepted the borders and boundaries of uh, the countries on their on their own borders, and th- this is what I think is this is all about, and this is why. The, the aggression is so serious and obviously intensified by the inhumanity of it all. So I, I do think that Western countries and, and others are going to have to keep on uh, not only making sure that Ukraine has access to the weapons that it needs, uh, but that uh, in order to be able to defend itself as best it can. But I think there are going to have to be additional questions. I know that in Brussels today, the foreign ministers are meeting. I'm sure they're considering what further sanctions they can take, what further measures they can take. Um, I think the measures they've taken so far have had some effect. 
uh, on the Russian economy and on the ability of the of the uh, Russians to uh, to carry on. But um, uh, to quote from Shakespeare, we have scotched the snake, but we have not killed it. In other words, we've wounded Russia, but we have not we've not yet deterred them from doing what they're doing. I was speaking with a human rights um, expert in Kiev, uh, a Ukrainian human rights expert this week, and a lot of them saw what was uncovered in Bucha, the, the, you know, the, the execution of civilians, we believe, as sort of not that they didn't think that might happen, but it was a turning point for them that somehow this whole invasion took on a much, much darker tone. And we saw it too with some of the dehumanization and the language coming out of Russia over the last few days, including from the former president, Dmitry Medvedev. Uh, how alarming is, is that the language we're now seeing? Because that feels like it's changed. Well, I don't think the language has changed. I actually think that Putin, in his own way, used that language through the summer and indeed has, has used it for, for many years when he talks about how the Ukrainians and uh, the Russians are one people and 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 then goes on to say that you know those who are expressing what he calls an extreme Western nationalism are are remnants of the the pro Nazis who were left you know who were collaborating with the Germans in the in the Second World War, and and that that uh, that language is is really uh, terrible because it's it, it's it reflects a thinking that is so inaccurate it be not that there weren't collaborators with the with the nazis there were collaborators with the nazis in russia uh but that nationalism ukrainian nationalism isn't of itself an evil thing and i think he really believes that and i think mevdevev believes it i think what mevdevev is lending himself to is that line of argument and i think it's a very dangerous line of argument uh i i think it makes it harder and harder to imagine how you're going to have a serious uh, stable, secure agreement with the Russians, um, if that's their mindset. If that, and, and I've seen that on display here at the UN. Their ambassador talks that language. Uh, the foreign minister Lavrov talks that language all the time. It's it's very dangerous um, because it reflects the thinking that is that is potentially genocidal. And the lies, Ambassador Ray, the lying is what's always so. I mean, shocking is, a, is an extreme term, but the lying, even from people in positions of authority and power, the foreign minister, as you mentioned, your counterpart at the UN, um, it, it, it still boggles the mind. It does. Uh, I mean, it, it does, but it, it, you, you have to understand that this, this style of, of propaganda goes deep, deep into, into the history of the past. What's interesting for me is, as a, part-time historian is this kind of approach to propaganda was something that the Russians under in, in Soviet times, they, they, they were real specialists in and disinformation and, and, and creating plots and creating uh, just complete fiction and turning it into a fact. And that's, of course, what George Orwell wrote about an animal farm in, in 1984. And that's really what, what we're seeing is the continuation of that Soviet-style thinking and acting uh, under Putin's leadership, which, which means that, and then it lends itself to an all-new kind of disinformation. Um, but we, we, I, think, I think the one thing that we know now is that we're onto it. <laughs> I mean, 
we know we know we know what this beast is and we can see it in action every every day it doesn't make it any easier but it does i think allow us to identify much more readily what's going on this is a serious campaign of of disinformation and lying that is intended to drive public opinion in a completely different direction and it 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 is based on the premise that there are no facts that facts can disappear overnight people can disappear overnight history can change don't forget the hero the hero of uh, 1984 winston smith worked in the worked in the uh, the ministry of truth um I mean, that's that's the final irony, right? I mean, uh, he, his business was rewriting history. Um, and so this is what these guys are up to. And that's what they do. You've spoken very eloquently about this over the last 42 days since this began, this latest invasion began. What has been the most frustrating part for you as this has unfolded in front of us from the initial invasion to the shelling in Mariupol to the uncovering of, of the bodies in Bucha? I think the frustrating thing for me is that knowing what's happening, describing it doesn't mean that it's that that we're changing it. And I think that's the thing that's ultimately the most the most frustrating. Uh, we uh, because of the uh, the argument that Russia has the bomb and uh, and Putin is has his hand on the trigger. Uh, we 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 have to be uh, you know we can't do too much uh, on the military side. Um, I must confess that I, I think that's that's something that he was counting on. Uh, I don't think he was counting on the reaction on the sanctions. I don't think he was counting on the resilience of the Ukrainians. But uh, we do have to admit that the one central point that President Zelensky made yesterday, and that is that we, that we the member states of the United Nations, despite uh, clear breaches of the charter, despite absolutely crystal clear uh, breaches of international law, we have not been able to stop aggression. And that, I think, is the most single frustrating thing. I'm speaking with Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray. We've been discussing the invasion of Ukraine and what we've seen over the last 72 hours or last uh, over the last few days, including evidence of war crimes, evidence of uh, civilians being killed, executed, more shelling today of residential areas in the east. Uh, Ambassador Ray, I mean, the founding principles of the United Nations to which we were party were all about trying to avoid the never again, trying to avoid these sorts of situations. And Russia continues to seem to make a mockery of these rules. Um, there are uh, there is a vote coming up uh, tomorrow. Uh, what else can be done in terms of reform? Is there a way to remove, say, temporarily the veto sanction on the Security Council? Is that something we should be looking at now? <laughs> Well, the problem is the is the is the is what's written down. I mean, the problem is the rules are you have five permanent members. Um, the theory behind the five permanent members was that they together would effectively become the policemen of the world. Uh, and looking back on it now, and even at the time, there were a number of people who said this was incredibly naive. Because don't forget, 1945 was the end of the Second World War. 1945 was also the beginning of the Cold War, because it was in 1945 that people began to fully come to grips with the fact that the good news was that we had defeated Hitler and that form of totalitarianism. The bad, the bad news is we, we did it the, by virtue of joining with another totalitarian state, uh, the Soviet Union, and they have proceeded to take advantage in every way of 
of the uh, system of governance which we gave ourselves in 1945. So yes, the, the Charter talks about ending the scourge of war. The Charter allows countries to defend themselves. The Charter allows for lots of things. But the Charter also gives a veto to uh, the Soviet Union and now the Russian Federation uh, as a permanent member of the UN. So any talk about throwing Russia out of the Security Council is would only happen if Russia agreed to leave the Security Council or, or to abandon its veto, neither of which is going to happen. So we have to, the, the, true, the true nature of the dysfunctionality of the Security Council uh, is, is now exposed for all to see. Uh, there's no more, no more hiding it or covering it up or pretending it's not a real problem. Um, it's an absolutely critical problem. And that means we have to go around the Security Council to get to do the things we want to do. And it means that member states have to form coalitions of the willing in order to uh, maintain the charter. Um, and luckily, we have the means to do that. There's one article, Article 51, uh, which says that not only that member states have the right to defend themselves, but other nation states have the right to join together those nation states from aggression. And that's the basis upon which um, international action can be taken, as well, of course, as things like NATO and other regional organizations which have been created. But the UN itself, uh, through the Security Council, is, is basically out of the business of authorizing interventions when one of the <laughs> aggressors is a member of the Security Council, is a permanent member of the Security Council. That, that isn't going to happen. And um, it has to happen through the General Assembly. It has to happen through coalitions of the willing. It has to happen through uh, regional organizations. And that's where, the, that's where the capacity to intervene has to really uh, take place. There is a vote, I know, on Thursday uh, about Russia's, uh, about at least suspending Russia from the Human Rights Council. Uh, how important is that vote, do you think? Well, I think it's a step along the way. I think it's, I think, I'm, we're certainly Canada certainly supporting it. Uh, we, we'll be outlining our reasons uh, tomorrow in the debate. Uh, to me, the the, the 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 principle is you you can't you can't conduct yourself in this way and then and then lay claim to being a uh, a member of the of the organization which is uh, which is supposed to be upholding human rights. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and I I'm I'm hoping that two thirds of the members who are voting. Um, yeses and noes. Uh, I'm hoping that two thirds of those will vote in favor of the motion, and uh, we'll just—you never know. I, I've been through enough elections to know that you don't talk about what's going to happen until it's happened. But uh, we're working hard to get the votes we need. Twenty-one days ago, I was watching a speech you delivered in the United Nations before another vote by the General Assembly to condemn Russia's invasion. Uh, are you more or less optimistic now than you were twenty-one year, twenty-one days ago about how this may play out? Well, I mean, I'm struck by by the resilience of people, the resilience of the Ukrainian people, by by the the, the fact that we know what's going on, that there are no secrets here, uh, that the facts are being exposed, that more and more people are aware. Um, so that's all positive. I, I feel very positive about that. I, I am deeply troubled by uh, the the inability of so many people to understand fully the the nature of tyranny 
uh, and how it has to be resisted and how it has to be overcome. Uh, and occasionally how it has to be fought. Um, I think our, our parents and grandparents knew this. I think they learned it hard from their experience. I think we've, uh, it's a lesson we have to learn as well. You, you, the, the, tyrants are not going to give way voluntarily. Uh, and, and there's no question in my mind that the, 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 the regime in Russia at the moment is a tyranny. Uh, and it, it, is, it, 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 it has to be resisted and it has to be overcome. And I, I'm, uh, as I say, I'm always astonished by how many people are saying, oh, you know, don't, don't, uh, you know, those are war. You're talking like, uh, you know, you want to go to war. And I, nobody wants to go to war. Uh, but at the same time, nobody wants to get run over by a tyrant. And I think we have to understand that. Bob Ray, thank you so much for your time, as always. Good to talk to you. Take care now. <laughs>